Today's episode is based on the accounts written in The Affairs of the Poisons, Murder, Infanticide, and Satanism at the Court of Louis XIV by Anne Somerset. I don't know about you, but I love myself. A good conspiracy. Are you one of those people? I mean, I'm not saying that I believe in the conspiracies. I'm not that kind of person. If you are, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't mean to offend you. But when it comes to historical record, I look at conspiracies and I think, nah, probably doesn't exist. But at the same time, if somebody starts telling me how Stanley Kubrick fabricated the moon landing, I'm, I'm fascinated. I think everybody's got a little bit of that, right? One of my favorite things to do is at three in the morning on a long drive, I like to turn on Coast to Coast. And if you've never listened to Coast to Coast, I suggest you stop this podcast and at least go listen to a little bit of it. Because it's one of those call-in shows where people call in about how they've been abducted by aliens, or the men in black, or a Bigfoot sighting. And there's something about that that I find interesting, but the reason I like to listen to it at three in the morning on a dark road while I'm driving is because 99% of the time I hear it and I think that's crazy talk. But then there's that 1% of the time and I need to be in just the right circumstances. And for me, it's three in the morning on a country road while I'm driving. I'm tired and I get a little paranoid. And when that one guy comes on coast to coast and starts talking about how his car suddenly shut off, and then there's some bright lights, and next thing he knows, he's woken up in a hospital. I don't know. 99% of the time, I think that's crazy. But then there's that little 1% of me that goes, well, maybe, maybe he's right. There's something about a good conspiracy that just grips people if it's under the right circumstances. Let me give you a really crazy conspiracy, just really quick. Before we dive in, a lot of people think that the assassination of JFK had a little bit of funny business going on. A lot of people think that Lee Harvey Oswald was a hitman for somebody. The Soviet Union, Cuba, the deep state. Let's assume for a second that he was. Well, let me take that conspiracy a step farther. You see, Lee Harvey Oswald was a Marine Corps veteran in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. What if I told you that Lee Harvey Oswald wasn't the only shooter. In fact, he had a group of co-conspirators. What if I told you that every single Marine Corps veteran in the Dallas-Fort Worth area was in on the act? That sounds a little bit like crazy talk, doesn't it? But the thing is, Paris, France, opened up a can of worms and discovered a vast conspiracy. And just like that incident, it climbed all the way to the very top, to the king. And it was a group of people who were assassinating Parisian citizens. Part of what made it wild was that it involved an entire occupation. Just like every Marine Corps veteran in our little conspiracy, imagine every single person of a particular occupation. Teacher, plumber, lawyer, being in on a vast conspiracy to murder 
And what makes this conspiracy so great is that there's a little bit of truth to it. And just like every good conspiracy, it starts with a murder. I'm Trevor Rhodes, and this is High Crimes in History. On July 17, 1676, in Paris, France, Madame de Brevignier is going to be executed by beheading. She's wearing a noose to symbolize death, and she's going to be paraded through the streets. This is a normal event and occurrence, kind of the way that we consider prison to be a deterrent for crime. Back then, public execution was a deterrent for crime. The person would be paraded through the streets, and what witnesses in Paris would do is they would actually show compassion towards these convicts, especially women convicts like Bryn Vier was. It was just part of the event. However, in this case, there's no compassion for Bryn Vier. In fact, she's spat upon. Insults and threats are thrown at her. She was, quote, an enemy of the human race. What makes Brinvier so despised by the Parisian citizens is she was convicted of poisoning her father and two brothers over a period of time. Not only that, she had also tried to poison her husband and her daughter, but she got cold feet in both cases and gave them some antidotes. And if that wasn't enough, she had conspired to murder her daughter-in-law and her sister. There were rumors in the public that she had visited hospitals in Paris and fed the patients poisoned food in order to ascertain the damage caused so that when she did the real act of poisoning her family, she would know the correct dosage. There's also rumors that she'd been committing adultery and incest, and some of this is fantastical. But what stood her apart was she was no pauper. She was a marquis, a rich, noblewoman of Paris, and she had a vast fortune. Her father was actually the civil lieutenant of Paris, basically the appellate judge of Paris. Her marriage to her husband was, quote, marked by the greatest happiness and tenderness, end quote. But in reality, she had been having an affair with a cavalry captain, and when her father found out, he threw the captain into the Bastille, the Parisian prison. Once the captain was released after six weeks, he continued his escapades with Bryn Vier. That captain was named San Croix. San Croix rents a small place that he converts to a laboratory. Now that's not uncommon at this time. Alchemy is actually seen as a science. Alchemy is basically the conversion and transmutation of these common metals, so think like iron, copper, tin, into precious metals like gold and silver. Another thing that's big during this time is apothecaries. That's like a pharmacist, except they sold herbs and metals as well as drugs. Part of the reason why they sell all three of them is that all three are used in alchemy, and metals, in fact, are considered organisms during this time. They thought that they could grow them like plants and transform them like plants. 
And so these apothecaries would sell all three of them. What's interesting is that during this time, they could create real drugs and poisons. Think of arsenic, vitriol, citric acids. So there is a little bit of science to apothecaries and alchemy, but at the same time, there's a little bit of weirdness too. So like, for example, they might prepare a medicine using the skull of a man dead of a violent death. Or maybe they might make like an antidepressant salt, but it's made from the fresh urine of children from like 8 to 12. So yeah, there's a little bit of weirdness to apothecaries. It's straddling that bend between, I guess, what we'd consider medieval alchemy and then modern chemistry. The scientific revolution during this time is in full swing. And so it's a bit of an evolution going on. Another thing that's interesting during this time is that these poison sales that they can make are legal in France. Anybody can make a poison. There's no regulations on it, and that's because it was used commonly in Paris. Not to poison people, but for other aspects. Like, for example, like rat poison. Anybody can make it. You could use it to poison plants that you didn't want in your yard. You could use it sort of almost in a homeopathic way, like one one-ten-thousandth of arsenic, put it in a little bit of water, mix it around, and it'll cure your upset stomach. The thing is that people are fearful of poisons during this time. The idea was that if they all understood that the scientific revolution is going on, and if these advances are being made in things like astronomy, physics, chemistry, well, why not toxicology, the study of poisons? What gripped the public in this case was that Brinvier confessed that a famous Swiss chemist had given her the recipe for the poison that she uses on her family members. And in fact, what freaks everybody out is that that Swiss chemist was the royal apothecary, the pharmacist to the king. People were afraid during this time of poisons, not just because they're prevalent, but because they were afraid that they might be made undetectable. Again, if the scientific revolution is giving all of these advances, what if you could make poisons that could not be detected? Like, you perform an autopsy, you open it up, and it just looks like a normal body, but it was actually poisoned. Well, when saint Croix decides to squander his fortune, Brinvier decides to murder her father so that she could inherit his fortune afterwards. After her father's death, saint Croix and Brinvier run through their money relatively quickly. Once they do, they decide to murder her two brothers for their shares of the fortune. There's also a little bit of petty revenge going on. Her father had thrown saint Croix into the Bastille, and both the brothers sided with the father when he was imprisoned. So I guess there's a little bit of petty revenge going on. Brinvier was smart. She understood that in order to try to make this as undetectable as possible, she would have to poison people slowly. She was using mercury, and it has a very strong metallic taste, and people who would oftentimes taste metal in their drinks would immediately think that they were being poisoned, so in order to hide it, it has to be added slowly to your food or your drink. She would use powder and sprinkle it on food. She'd put a few drops into people's drinks, she used the servants of her brothers and father to administer the poison. But then a snag hit. 
Once both brothers were dead, people began to be suspicious. First a father, and then two brothers dead, all very quickly. So they decide to call for an autopsy. When they cut them open, both brothers, they find that the stomach and the liver are black with late stages of gangrene. The intestines are actually disintegrating in them while they were alive. It's pretty obvious that, at this point, the brothers have been poisoned, and probably the father as well. But there's no idea who the culprit could be. In fact, no suspicion falls on the servants or Brinvier, because he sees that the servants are just common, everyday people. Brinvier is simply a woman. During this time, they were not viewed as high in society. Brinvier uses the opportunity to start to conspire to poison her sister and her sister-in-law for their fortunes as well. But then something terrible happens. Possibly the worst thing that could happen to her. On July 30th, 1672, Sanquois died from illness. He was in a massive amount of debt. The collectors needed to commandeer his assets because of this, and so what they do is they close and lock up his house and search the house to find things that you could sell to pay off the debts. And they find a letter titled, My Confession. Now, this was France in the 1670s, and a lot of people were still Catholic. So the idea of a confession letter isn't the worst possible thing in the world. A lot of people wrote down their confessions. And so after a little bit of deliberation... They all agree that whatever this confession is, they probably should just burn it, because it's between him and God, so they do. But then they find, nearby, a recently made casket of fresh wood, and it's signed to Brinvier in the event of his death. They open up the casket, and inside, they find alchemical ingredients, a recipe dated near the time of her brother's death that looks a lot like a payment, like a receipt. And many, many poisons. At this point, Brinvier realizes that the jig might be up. And before they can ask and investigate her, she flees the country. Once they wise up, they capture her servant and they put him on trial. In fact, he gets tortured and then executed on the wheel, which is a terrible way to go. Basically, they break your limbs and run them through the spokes of a wheel. It's actually very controversial, too. The idea of torture, whenever I think of medieval times, I think it must have been just sort of a, the moral thing to do. People considered it just, people thought that you could get a lot of information out of it, but that actually was not the case in early modern Europe. People figured out by this point that it does not produce the results that you would like. Oftentimes it produces lies, because anybody is going to try to get out of a torture by giving up whatever they can, even if it's false. The servant under torture, confesses to the murder of the brothers. De Brevignier escapes for several years, and she travels across Europe. Eventually, she is caught and arrested and extradited in 1676 back to Paris. When they capture her, they find another letter titled, My Confession, and this time they're wise enough not to burn it, and when they open it, it's a confession letter about all of the murders, the conspiracies to commit murder. They also find in these details to murder other family members. When she's put to trial, numerous servants and tutors also corroborate these murders, and then she herself confesses to the murders on threat of torture. 
Unfortunately for her, they torture her anyways after her crimes. And then she's beheaded on July 17th. This should be the end of the tale, but it's not. You see, remember how I said under 99% of circumstances, people will probably look at a conspiracy theory and think, oh, that's probably not true. But then there's always 1%. Where the circumstances come together and create a nice, perfect storm where people can believe that there might actually be something going on. People were afraid that Bryn Vier was not the only poisoner out there. And they actually had pretty good reason for this. In San Qua's casket was found all of those receipts and a bundle of papers addressed to a Monsieur de Pernotier. And I should probably stop right now and say it, I'm very terrible with my French, so if I mispronounce anything, my apologies. Now, Penaultier is questioned, and what was interesting is that he had tried to see Brinvier after the casket had been opened. He had heard about it and rushed over, which seems a little bit weird because it's basically a bunch of evidence that there might have been some murders. It also doesn't help that during her prison stint, she had tried to warn Penaultier that they were asking questions of him, so she wrote a letter which was intercepted. She wanted help to ensure a person by the name of of Martin should be hidden away as, quote, these things matter as much to you as to me, end quote. When Penaltier is arrested, he is writing a letter. When they barge in, he tears it up and he tries to swallow the pieces, but before he can get them down his gullet, they're able to extract them and are going to piece them together. Although it seems with Brinvier's death that he will be freed, Something unexpected happens. A widow comes forward and accuses him of poisoning her husband and his own father-in-law. In fact, she claims that the bundle in San Qua's casket was receipts on payment of a poisoner. To make matters worse, Penaultier is the brother-in-law of Monsieur Le Beauze. He's a powerful family member that basically holds all these legal positions in the judiciary. The Lebolas family was very well known, and many of them were in the upper echelons of the government. Somebody important has been following all of these investigations since Brinvier, King Louis XIV, the King of France. The king is paranoid that maybe Brinvier was not the only one because she was able to murder a lot of people before she was found out. What if other people had been poisoned? What if there were other poisoners out there? So he orders an investigation into the whole ordeal. On July 20th, 1677, about a year after the death of Brinvier, Penaultier's case comes to trial. At the trial, the pieces of the letter had been reassembled and the contents revealed he was actually trying to make arrangements to send an unnamed man into the country Possibly this Martin character. He actually argues in court that the reason why he tore up the letter and tried to eat the contents of it was that he was frightened when the officers barged in. And hilariously, the court actually accepts this and all the charges are dropped. Guess that's what you get when you have family members in the judiciary. But the fact remains that between these two cases, Brinvier's and Penaultier's, the French public begins to believe that... Poison is out there. 
and anybody can do it. I'd liken it a little bit to the way that the United States saw communism in the 1950s. That there's sleeper agents among us, and it could be anybody. It could be your spouse. It could be your neighbor. It could be your, your son or daughter. And that was kind of what's going on here in Paris, France in the 1670s. Anybody could be a poisoner, they thought. A rich person, a poor person, an old person, a young person. Male, female, it didn't matter. To add fear to the equation, just before Brinvier's execution, she announced, quote, Out of so many guilty people, must I be the only one to be put to death? End quote. Now, to most people, that might just sound like, oh yeah, there's a lot of other criminals out there that might deserve death a little more than you do. But to those who, again, in the 1% of circumstances, are a little bit worried of poisoning, doesn't that sound a little bit like someone saying, hey, there's a bunch of other poisoners out there, why am I the only one being killed? If the royal apothecary, who, remember, was supposedly the one who supplied the medicines to both the king, and in this case, had supplied the poison to Brinvier, anybody could be a suspect, right? The affair of the poisons officially starts in February of 1677 with the arrest of Magdalene de Lagrange, a fortune teller. She is a widow who had recently been married to a lawyer in August of 1676, but he died shortly after the marriage. Her marriage certificate is found to be a forgery, and so people start to suspect that she murdered him for the inheritance. She writes a letter to Marquis de Louvois while she's in prison. Louvois is the Secretary of War for King Louis XIV, one of the most powerful men in France. And the letter says that she has information that threatens the very state of government itself. Louvois is alarmed enough to hand the investigation over to the chief of Paris police, La Renie. La Renie is pretty well known in Paris. He's very confident in his job. But if only he knew the Pandora's box he's about to open, maybe he would have turned down this investigation. Madame Lagrange is interrogated in the Bastille. She states that both the king and the dauphin, which is his son, were going to be assassinated. Originally, La Rene does not believe this. He sees it as simply a way that she's trying to postpone her trial because she's probably going to get executed if she's convicted. But then, in October of 1677, an anonymous letter turns up in Paris. It's found in a church left by a churchgoer, no one knows who, and it states that a woman intends to poison a very important person by placing a white powder on that person's napkin. The idea being that once the powder gets on the napkin, they'll wipe their face, the powder will get into their system, and they'll be poisoned. But what's interesting about this letter is that it mentions treason, and the only way that treason can be done is if it's against the state. And all of a sudden, suspicion falls that the very important person mentioned in the letter is the king or his family. And there's a lot of questions to ask here. Is the letter planted? Maybe somebody left it as a hoax? But then concurrently, something else happens. Less than a month later, in December 5th, 1677, the gentleman of Louis Venens is arrested. He's a lawyer. What's weird about his arrest is when he's arrested, he's found to have a bill of exchange on him worth 200,000 livres. That'd be like $6 million today. He's just walking around with $6 million in his pocket. And I know there's a lot of good lawyers out there that make good money, 
But $6 million in your pocket seems like a little bit much, doesn't it? The bill of exchange is written to a banker. And when they go to the bank, there's no record of the transaction ever having taken place. The Nenens is held in the Bastille while the investigation takes place. And then in April of 1678, his servant comes forward. The servant says that as long as he is pardoned, he will confess, quote, important things to say which concern the king that might save a life of 50 people a year, end quote. During this time of the investigation, three associates of Venens were also arrested. All of them have evidence that they have been brewing alchemical ingredients. And when Venens' servant confesses, La Reni finds out that Venens and his associates were brewing poisons for the banker. Then the banker would pay them, and he would turn around and sell these poisons to important foreigners to assassinate politicians. Venen had also poisoned associates who knew too much, including former employees and his landlady. Most ominously, the servant declared, quote, La Brinvier is not dead. She's left behind heirs. End quote. As if the plot wasn't thick enough, around the same time, another lawyer attends a dinner party put on by a woman named La Vigoreau. She's a wealthy diviners. The other guest is also a diviner, Marie Bosset. Over the course of the dinner, Bosset becomes drunk, and in her drunkenness, she states that she's going to be able to retire soon. And when the lawyer asks, oh, why is that? She says, well, once I finish poisoning three more people. Both are arrested in 1679. With their arrest, the focus now turns to diviners, because that seems to be one of the common threads holding the entire investigation together. But what is a diviner? Well, diviners is an occupation that doesn't exist anymore. The best way to put it is it's a cross between a fortune teller, a pharmacist, and like a cosmetologist. Diviners were mostly women. There's at least 400 of them in Paris alone, possibly more. What you could do is you could go to a diviner and they could do a lot of things for you. They could read your palm or your horoscope. Then maybe you have arthritis or inflammation. They could give you a drug or give you a spell that you could recite. Then they could sell you like a skincare solution and all of that could be done in one trip. Diviners were oftentimes used as love consultants. They could prescribe medicines to help soothe an angry husband. A lot of wives, though, would come, and they were dissatisfied with their marriages. So what they could prescribe would be, I guess, a divining of their death. As a wife would come in and maybe ask, you know, I'm very unsatisfied with my marriage. When is my husband going to die so I can get on with my life? And they would divine their death. Many of these diviners had women who wanted a lover or a husband dead quicker. Now, as a diviner, what you could prescribe would be things like prayers, magic spells. And a lot of it, it sounds kind of like, you know, oh, is it Harry Potter? Well, a lot of this magic required extensive work. You might require, for example, to get some of your urine, maybe some soiled bed sheets, menstrual blood, the bones of dead animals, even humans. You might be thinking, this sounds crazy. Well, these practices are technically part of the occult, which was illegal in France, 
But unless it was operated publicly and was like blaspheming God publicly, it's permissible. In fact, the last execution for witchcraft in Paris was in 1625, 50 years before the affair of the poisons. There's also another side to this, and that's fear of the devil. It's really hard to to imagine it in modern ways, but the fear of the devil gripped people. The idea was that he was real manifestation, like he could appear to you in a physical presence, and he could plague upon people. So of course it makes sense that you could conjure him up or a demon to sick on a husband. That's totally within the realm of possibility of Paris, France. So here's the common setup of what would happen in these cases. A person would complain that someone should die, and they would ask the diviner to use the magic to do so. Diviner would do the magic. Magic fails. When they want to get more done, the diviner would prescribe them a poison and say, give this to your husband, to your wife, to the victim. You might be wondering, why would the customer go along with this? Well, think about it. In a way, this is like homeopathic medicine, where they could rack up this gigantic invoice on you. And the idea was that the customer had already paid all of this money and seen no results, and now they're being given a tangible result that can occur. Sure, it requires a little bit of murder, but is it really any different than asking them to perform a spell to kill off your husband? As long as nobody knows, who cares? So having already paid a bunch of money, customers would accept it and use it. Lagrange and La Bosse, after they are arrested, are found that they have been in contact with Valens, and it ties the investigation together. It convinces La Reine that there is a network of poisoners working with one another in Paris. There's not tons of evidence that this is the case, but he decides to push the investigation farther. Unfortunately for him, Lagrange is executed because she refuses to give up anybody. On the other hand, Marie Bosset actually is able to bring this full circle. When they investigate Bosset's house, they find a very similar casket, just like Bryn Vie's, and when they open it, it too contains poisons. Under interrogation, Madame Vigoreau admits to having a client, Marguerite de Polaillon, who had been recently put in a convent because her husband discovered that she was trying to kill him. She had been arrested in February of 1679, and she admits that she was having an affair, and she needed her husband's money to finance that affair. She tried to kill him by washing a shirt in arsenic so that when he wore it, it would absorb into the skin and he would die. But that didn't work. She decided to get some liquid and put it into her husband's wine, but he wised up to all of this and threw her in a convent. As the investigation grows, more accomplices are going to be taken into custody. Two associates tied to Poladion are arrested, then another woman under suspicion is taken into custody of murdering her husband. By this point, dozens are being implicated. The number of suspects has grown so large that in March, a special commission is set up to try them and farther the investigation. The commission is called the Arsenal Chamber. It has two uses for La Reynie. The first is that it stops the lower courts from being congested with too many cases. 
Paris, France still has plenty of other crimes going on, and La Renée doesn't want his investigation to interfere with the judiciary system any more than it needs to. The second is more important. It keeps the case from becoming public. La Renée is very afraid that this could be bigger than the investigation currently is at. Remember, this started with just simply talking about La Brinvier and a receipt. Now he's got dozens of people, and he wonders how much bigger is it going to get. He's also afraid of a factor we haven't talked about. The aristocracy. France had a little bit of a caste system going on. There was, like, commoners, like the lower class citizens, and there's a middle class. But then there was the upper class the aristocracy, and they really ran things in Paris and France as a whole. And of the aristocracy, the biggest part of it that he's worried about is the court, meaning the people around the king. Not just like advisors or people who work in government, but literally just the 1% of the 1%, the richest people in France. And he's afraid that if it gets up to them, all hell's going to break loose. And then into this is introduced a new player. His prime witness, possibly his downfall of the investigation. Marie Bosset, under interrogation, mentions a name multiple times in her interrogation. She mentions that this person introduced her to Lagrange and consulted with two other people under arrest that are currently being held in the Bastille. That person is La Voisin. The real name of the person is actually Catherine Montvoisin, but she went by the moniker La Voisin. And on March 12, 1679, Montvoisin is arrested as she comes out of Mass. La Voisin is a celebrity in the divining world. She's a very rich woman for being a diviner. She makes about 10,000 livres a year, which would be pretty good money. That'd put you into, like, upper middle class. Another thing that's kind of different about her compared to other diviners, she's very pious. A lot of these diviners did not believe in the magic spells that they were doing. A lot of them were not religious, I guess you'd say. But she was. In fact, she was so religious, she would give glory to God in her magic. There's a tale that's told of once. She was known to give abortions, and that was a capital crime and completely against the ecclesiastical law of France. But she did it. And once after this abortion that she gives, she was weeping with joy. When she was asked, why are you crying? She said that she was glad to have been part of its salvation. She's thrown in the Bastille. And in her interrogation, she actually denies anything's going on. In fact, she throws La Bosset under the bus. She starts talking about all these murders that La Bosset was a part of. La Reine decides then to actually use a tactic that we see sometimes today in modern police work. It, it functions a little bit differently. Here's how it works like nowadays. You've probably heard of this. Let's say two people are arrested for a crime, and they get put in separate interrogation rooms. Now, the police officer goes into one room, and he says, Look here, uh, we know you did the crime. We, here's the evidence. All we need you to do is confess to the crime and, and, and implicate your co-conspirator. And... In return, you'll be part of a plea deal, so you will not be heavily sentenced. But the problem is, is that the other person 
who is implicated in the crime, is also getting the very same spiel. Which means that if they give up before you do, then you don't get a plea deal, and they do. And then they leave them alone in the room to their thoughts. And you can imagine it puts immense pressure on the suspect, because now they're worried. They're thinking, oh god, if the other person gives up before I do, I, I could get way more years in prison. And so, if both of them are there, sooner or later one of them cracks and breaks. At least that's the intention. La Rainey is going to try something similar, but the difference is instead of putting them in two rooms, he's going to put them in one. He decides to put La Bosset and La Voisin in a room together as a double interrogation and see what happens. And as you can imagine, once they're together, accusations start flying. Each one starts throwing all of these different clients that have been supplied poisons to one another, multiple attempts at doing it. La Bosset has the crazier ones. She says, for example, that La Voisin had multiple fetuses from her abortions that she would do, and that they're all buried in La Voisin's garden. She also said that La Voisin treated flowers with a poison for a client, the idea being that once the client gave it to the victim, the victim would smell the flowers, poison would get up and through their olfactory senses, and boom, poisoned. Probably the craziest one, and possibly the most disgusting one, is that she says that La Voisin created a poison using a nitric acid that could then be used as an enema. Imagine that. Basically using an enema that then would burn you from the inside out. And what's crazy is La Voisin admits all of this is true. The most damning admission that she makes, she names two ladies who were upper-class citizens, whose husbands held positions of power in government. Both also had family members in the king's court. This is what La Renie was afraid of. And of course, when he reports directly to the king, the king is shocked to hear all of this. La Renie goes ahead and arrests those two women, and the entire court, the aristocracy, is incensed. The journal vibe around them is that he's completely overstepping his latitude for the investigation by arresting the upper echelons of government. Yes, of course, the lower-class citizens might be poisoning each other, but we would never do that. There's a little bit of fear going on at this point as well, because many of these aristocracy had visited diviners before. Divining's, again, a little bit like pharmacy. Anybody can go. It doesn't matter if you're young or old, rich or poor. You go to these diviners, and so the aristocracy is afraid that now they might be implicated because they went to them before, now they're under suspicion. La Basse and La Vigoreau are executed on May 4th of 1679, as associates of theirs are also executed. One of them even includes Basse's son. He prepared the poisons. These are not good executions. La Basse is burnt alive in front of her daughter. They actually grab her daughter, underage, and bring her to the execution and make her watch her mother burn alive. The idea was that the experience would serve as a deterrent. La Vigoro actually dies under torture. But the one who is spared is Madame Voisson. 
La Renee believes that he can learn more from her about the poisonings. And she does. In these investigations, she continues to give up influential clients. Meanwhile, the investigation is still investigating other associates. Some of them are associates of Voisson. Some of them are other diviners. In one day alone, 15 people are arrested, and all of them are involved in the divining business in one way or another. As the number of people arrested rise, so too do the interrogations. It's a cycle. The prisoners would give up a name of an associate or a client, and then those associates or clients would be arrested. They would give up names, and the cycle continues. And what was originally supposed to be this investigation about Bryn Vieille and the after effects has blossomed into this spider web where anybody can be implicated again. It sounds like a vast conspiracy, but La Renée is finding that multiple people are admitting to this. It's also shocking to him that pretty much nobody really knew about this, but apparently these prisoners just consider it part of their daily life to give poisons to people. In fact, it's an occupational hazard to do so. Making poisons isn't easy. A lot of these people gave accounts of how they or somebody else was poisoned when they were handling the chemicals in the alchemy labs. They were also very afraid of being poisoned by other diviners. The idea was that of all the people who would be willing to poison, it would be a diviner, right? They make the poisons. And oftentimes, it's kind of like a gang war, you know? The idea that, oh, a new diviner's on the block, well, before they get too much in power, maybe I should get rid of them. It was a big enough fear, apparently, that a lot of these diviners carried around antidotes just in case an occasion arose that they might get poisoned. The problem that La Renée is dealing with in the summer of 1679 is that most of these clients that are being given up by La Voisin and other people are lower and middle class. There's very few upper class citizens that have been given up, but La Renée believes that this conspiracy goes all the way to the top. But on September 12th, 1679, he gets the breakthrough he's looking for, and it's even worse than he imagined. Madame Voisson gives her fullest testimony that she has to date. It seems that she's been delaying, a lot like some of these other witnesses have, to put off her trial date. But as it seems to be getting closer, she decides to go into detail about a few of her clients. Most importantly, she gives a name the Duchess de Vivonne. That's a problem, because the de Vivonne is the sister-in-law of Madame de Montespan. Apparently, she had hired a magician named Lesage to murder her husband, but that's not what freaks out La Reine more than anything, because Madame de Montespan is not just any aristocrat. She's the mistress to King Louis XIV. La Renée always thought that the conspiracy went all the way to the top, but it got a lot closer to the king than he thought. High Crimes in History is produced, written, and edited by Trevor and Katie Rhodes. Music by Nick Wright. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It goes a long way to helping other listeners find us. If you have recommendations for show topics or comments about the show, 
You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or find us at our website, highcrimesinhistory.com.